Well, this morning we come to chapter 9 in our study of the book of Genesis. So you can go ahead and open up your Bibles there. Now, I've talked to you about a, a lot of different things as we've gone through the first eight chapters of Genesis thus far, and we've covered a, a few different topics along the way. But from a straight scriptural standpoint, if I give you a brief synopsis of each chapter that we've studied thus far, it would sound like this. In chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that lives. We are told in chapter 1 that he made mankind in his image and he gave them charge over all the earth. Then in chapter 2, God formed a man and gave him the Garden of Eden. He was told that he could eat of every tree except for one, and that was the tree of knowledge. And Adam was the only person in the garden at that point, and God said that it wasn't good for him to be alone, so God made a woman as his partner. In chapter 3, the serpent, influenced by Satan, deceived the woman, She and Adam both ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and Adam was instructed by God not to do that, right? And the earth, as a result, became cursed, and God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden. Then in chapter 4, we looked at how Adam and Eve's sons made offerings to God. Only Abel's offering was acceptable, so Cain killed him. Abel's blood cried out, and God sent Cain away. Uh, Cain went out of the presence of the Lord. But also in chapter 4, Seth was born. And it was from the line of Seth that people would begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Sin, as it does today, destroyed everything, but but God gave Adam and Eve grace and they gave them a son whose people would call on the name of the Lord. So from this line of people that called upon the name of the Lord would come Noah's sons. Then in chapter 6, mankind corrupted the earth with evil. God decided to destroy them. He told Noah, a righteous man who called upon the name of the Lord, to build an ark and to be saved from the coming judgment, the flood, right? Then in chapter 7, Noah and his family went into the ark with two of each Uh, unclean creature and seven pair of each clean creature. The fountains of the deep then opened up and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights on the earth and the earth was covered as were the mountains. Then in chapter 8, we saw where the flood began to recede. Noah sent out a raven and a dove. When the earth was dry, God called Noah and his family to come out of the ark and the first thing that Noah did was to build an altar and to sacrifice to God. So it's beginning all again. And if you look at the end of chapter 8 there in your Bible, verses 28 and 29 at the end of chapter 8, it says, And the Lord smelled a a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold 
and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. And then we begin chapter 9 with verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So right off the bat, we see here in verse 1 of chapter 9 that God gives a command to Noah and his sons. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And if you just take a moment to turn back with me to Genesis chapter 1. Go ahead and turn back there real quickly. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 28, speaking to the male and female that he had created, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you. It shall be for food also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. So in a sense, God puts man in charge of the earth to take care of it, to multiply, to have children, that is, to populate the earth. And back again in Genesis chapter 9 now, as Noah and his family are now off off of the ark and they're back on the land, God charges them again to be fruitful and multiply. God is here giving mankind another go at it, right? He continues to speak to Noah and his sons. And God says in verse two, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. So the land animals, the birds, the the fish and everything that moves on the earth will fear man. But God gives them God gives man permission to have them. And of course, mankind will go on to hunt and to fish and to tame and to train all of these living creatures, right? Then verse three, every moving thing that lives shall be for be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Okay, so what do you see taking place right here in verse three? Remember, we just read back in Genesis chapter one, verse 29, where God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be for food. So God gave the herbs, the trees, the seeds, the fruit and such for mankind before the flood. But here in Genesis nine, three, God adds to the menu. Right. God gives man permission to eat every moving thing that lives. So God does not require you to be a vegan. But if you want to be, then there's nothing wrong with that from a spiritual standpoint. But nor is there anything wrong with being a meat eater, meat eater. How do you say that? Meat eater either. (laughs) Nothing wrong with being a meat eater either. Right. From a spiritual standpoint, you see, there is um, this is where we have to be careful because people do become legalistic about that kind of thing. Many people are legalistic in this area and they want you to believe that God requires for you only to eat fruits 
and vegetables and such. But in the New Testament book of Colossians chapter 2 and in verse 16, it says, let no one judge you in food or drink. And the point of that chapter, Colossians chapter 2 that is, is that it's all about Jesus. And it's all about what Jesus has done. Okay, Jesus paid it all, right? There are no requirements in regards to what we eat or drink. The blood of Jesus is what has made us righteous in the sight of God and nothing more, nothing more at all, right? Now, I will say this, in our day and age, many of the foods that are available to us are not always all that healthy to us, are they? Things were a lot more pure back at the beginning of time than they are now, maybe in a sense, right? So you may want to watch what you eat, but that's your choice. That's up to you, right? But we do know that some things are better for us than others. And we want to keep in mind that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And God gave us our bodies that we could take care of it. But let's be clear here, right? God does not require any certain way of eating from us, okay? Again, there's a lot of legalism about that and many different religions, many different circles where people say you have to eat like a vegan and only, right? And eat only that way, right? So what you eat doesn't make you any more holy. And what you don't eat doesn't make you any more holy. But it's up to you how you eat from a health standpoint. But let's move on. God continues in verse 4 and says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. So this is an interesting verse And there's more to it than meets the eye here. God did not want them to eat their animals or their fish raw. I'm I'm not saying you can't eat sushi, right? He's not saying you can't eat sushi. But what God is saying here is don't just cut open an animal and start eating it. Handle the the animal properly, right? But notice there too that this verse equates the blood of flesh with the life of the flesh. Okay. Now this brings to my to my mind Leviticus chapter 17. So I want you to go ahead and turn there. Leviticus chapter 17 just to the right of Genesis you'll find Exodus and then Leviticus. Okay? Leviticus 17. And again I'm touching on this whole the life of the flesh is in the blood. Okay? In Leviticus chapter 17, I'm going to read to you uh, the first 11 verses. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, and to all of the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or lamb or goat in the camp, or who kills it outside of the camp, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people." To the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices which which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priest and offer them as peace offerings 
to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statue forever for them throughout their generations. Also, you shall say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for your soul. Okay, so what is all this about? Well, God established with Israel the law in which they were to abide by. We call it the law of Moses, right? And when you read the book of Leviticus, that's what you're reading about. The law that God gave to Israel. And we just read a little bit about that law there, didn't we? We see here in these verses of Leviticus 17 that God is telling them to honor him when they kill an animal for their food. That's the point here. Okay, that's the point being made. Honor the Lord first with what you have. But in verse 10 there, God warns them not to eat blood. And then in verse 11, he gives them the reason for this. He says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. This is, an inver- this is a very important fact. When blood drains out, the life is gone, right? Be that in a man or be that in a beast. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And furthermore, in the law, when God had them perform their sacrifices, verse 11 also tells us the reason that God had them do this. God says there, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So this is a very important fact that God has established here with the people of Israel. And that is that the shedding of blood is necessary for making one's soul right before God. And of course, we find out in the New Testament, right, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin. His blood cleanses all who come to Him. Okay, He was the final sacrifice. No more need for that type of sacrifice anymore after Jesus. Now it's just simply all about putting our faith and our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But the shedding of blood was necessary for the atonement of the soul, right? And mankind, time and time again, throughout the Old Testament, they would sacrifice every year, every year, but it could never do anything to totally cleanse a person's conscience of their sin. But Jesus Christ, His blood, has paid it all for us, okay? So back in Genesis chapter 9, God knew that he was going to establish with his people in the future this covenant. 
So he tells Noah and his sons not to eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. You know, you will find out as we continue on to go from Genesis to Revelation again, Lord willing, we'll find out the importance of blood, as I've already mentioned. And we've talked about the law when, you know, we'll talk about the law more when we get into Exodus and Leviticus and the future, if the Lord wills. But continuing on now in verse 5 of Genesis 9, God says, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So, what are those verses saying there? Well, it's very simple. If a beast or a man kills another man, then whoever killed it must be killed. Why? Well, because at the end of verse 6, it tells us why, and that is, is that God made man in his image. You see, God already had this problem before the flood, didn't he? Very early on in the beginning of time, Cain killed Abel. Cain knew that as a result that he would be a marked man. Cain even said that, that he would be a marked man. And he pleaded with God for mercy. And God granted him mercy, didn't he? But he sent him away to forever live outside of the presence of God. Okay? You see, man is fearfully and wonderfully made, and God did institute the death penalty after the flood for anyone that takes the life of another. And we later find in the book of Romans where the word tells us that it, that it is the duty of governments to make the decision at, as to whether one gets the death penalty or not, right? Paul said that they don't bear the sword in vain. It's the government's job to do that. And there are those that have received mercy for one reason or another, aren't there? But again, the bottom line is that God does not want us to kill one another. He wants mankind to be fruitful and to multiply and to replenish the earth, to take care of the earth. God wants everything good like he made it in the beginning. That was his intention from the very beginning. He saw everything that he made and it was good. And that was his intention for mankind. Of course, mankind and sin has destroyed many things time and time again. But it's not God's will that we have this, okay? Verse 7 and as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply upon it, right? So just like it was in the very beginning before the flood, God wants mankind to be blessed upon the earth. Take care of the earth. Love one another. Grow strong on the earth. This is God's desire for mankind, right? Then verse 8, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me... Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God is making a promise to mankind here. It's not his will to ever destroy the earth again with a flood. This covenant is with Noah and with every living thing on the earth. It's with mankind and with every living thing on the earth. Okay? 
Let's read a little bit more about this covenant. Verse 12. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, you can go back and listen to last week's teaching as I expound it uh, a lot more on the whole rainbow thing and the way in which that symbol is being used today. But God continues to explain here in verse 14, it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So we see a few things about this covenant here. For one, it is an unconditional covenant, meaning that it does not depend upon anything that Noah or his descendants had to do in order to fulfill this covenant, right? The promise is based upon God's faithfulness alone. God is faithful to His Word. He does what He says He will do. Nothing will change the fact that God will never destroy the earth again with a flood. But, as I touched on last week as well, the earth one day will be destroyed with fire, won't it, in the last days. But you don't need to fear about a worldwide flood ever again because God has promised that He will not do that again. Then verse 18 here, he continues, Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. So one very key point to see there in verse 19 is that it tells us that from these three sons of Noah, the whole earth, was populated. So all of us here are in that sense descendants of these three, right? Next week, Lord willing, we will take a look at some of these descendants in chapter 10, and we will see how the whole earth began to be populated. Chapter 10 is called uh, the table of nations because it describes where all the nations have come from. But verse 20 here goes on to say, And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. So Noah began right away to plant and tend to the earth again after the flood. And one of the things that he did was to plant a vineyard. It is from this vineyard that he made wine. And verse 21 tells us, Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. Now, what do you see that's happened here, right? Noah, a man of God, became drunk with wine. You see, the Bible does not try to hide the sins of the people of God. You ever think about that? Because it's a book of truth. You see, if it were inspired by men rather than by the Holy Spirit, then the men behind it, I'm sure, would have glamorized the characters of the Bible and not spoke of their sin. 
You see, this is the tendency of men and women even today, isn't it? We love to lift up other people or be puffed up ourselves. But the Bible tells us to beware when we think we stand, lest we fall. But again, the Word of God speaks truth to us. In the pages of Scripture, we see Noah's sin here. We see King David's sin. We see Saul slash Paul persecute Christians. We see Peter deny Jesus. So this is a real book. It's a factual book. It doesn't try to glamorize the people of God, right? But what else can we take from this verse here? Well, for one, the drunkenness of Noah was indeed wrong, right? Let's mark this page and turn to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20. And let's just read verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So keep this in mind for a moment and turn up to chapter 23, Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23, down in verse 29. It says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? So there's six questions there, right? And verse 30 gives us the answer to those questions. It says, those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. So look back at verse 29 again, right? Alcohol brings woe. It brings sorrow. It causes contentions, makes for a life full of complaints. It causes wounds. And you wind up with redness of eyes as the least of all these things, right? There's not much good that comes out of lingering around this kind of thing, right? Verse 31 continues, Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around so smoothly. This is painting that good picture of you just holding that glass and swirling it around, and boy, it looks so good, right? And, and the la- at the last, it bites like a serpent and, and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of a mast saying, they have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? See, if I could do a good impression of a drunk guy, I would have said it like that, right? But Noah was a righteous man. Though Noah was a righteous man, and though Noah was saved from the flood by God, he still acted foolishly and got drunk. And as we flip back to Genesis chapter 9, we see the bad outcome of Noah's foolish behavior. And verse 22 continues and tells us, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Okay, so Ham, if he would have done what was right, 
he would have just turned away his face and found a way to cover up his father's foolishness, right? To cover his father's sin. Love covers a multitude of sin. But instead, he has to kind of ham it up, right? He has to tell his brothers about his dad's foolishness. But something to note there is that Scripture here tells us, tells us that Ham is the father of Canaan. And what does that mean from a scriptural standpoint, that he's the father of Canaan? Why is that pointed out here in the moment of his foolishness? Well, if you mark this page and you turn again to the book of Leviticus, this time Leviticus chapter 18. Genesis 18, uh, I'm sorry, Leviticus 18, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord, your God. So what, so what am I pointing out to you here? Well, there in verse 3, we see that the Lord God instructs the children of Israel to not do what the people of Canaan do, right? The Lord is contrasting the ways of the people of Canaan with the ways He wants His children to live. Okay, let me show you another example of this. Turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 20. Just one more book to the right after Leviticus. No, I'm sorry, two more books, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, chapter 20. Verse 16. It says, but of the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall not let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. Now, something I didn't plan on touching here on here, but when you, when you look at this, right, God is really establishing purity with His people. And He's calling His people to come out of the ways of the people of the world. And even today, He does the same thing with us, right? We're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to come out from among them. We are to be crucified to the world, and the world crucified to us, dead to it, right? Living in the ways of the Word of God and not in the ways of the world, right? But here again, the Lord God is pointing out to His children in these verses that we, we just read, the children of Israel, that the ways of the people of the people like Canaan are contrary to the ways of the Lord. Their ways are an abomination to the Lord. And the Lord wants the children of Israel to be separate from these people. 
So as we flip back to Genesis chapter 9, and we see in verse 22 where it points out that Ham is the father of Canaan, we can get the picture here that Ham's boy, Canaan, right, his son, and eventually the Canaanite people as a whole were kind of just chips off the old block of their father, Ham, that is. They behave in a foolish manner. They do not serve the true God, but they rather worship a false God, a God of idols. And you can read about that in the Bible with the people of Canaanite. And we'll talk about who these Canaanite people are next week when we get into the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. But for now, let's finish out this chapter. Verse 23 continues and says, But Shem, and I'm back in Genesis 9, But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So again, Ham, instead of doing what was right, he ran and he told his brothers, And he pointed out the foolishness of his fathers. He could have handled the situation differently. He could have handled the situation with integrity. But instead he runs and he tells it, right? But Shem and Japheth Japheth come along and do what was right. So Noah, verse 24, So Noah awoke from his wine and knew that what his younger son had done to him. Now, this is a verse that has been a cause for much speculation. What did Ham do to Noah? What did Noah know about what happened when he woke up from this? Well, the scripture is actually silent on this matter, and we just don't know. But what we do know is enough, and that is what God wants us to know about this situation. Okay? And Noah reacts in verse 25. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. So Noah is here pronouncing a curse, not upon his son Ham, because remember, God just recently blessed Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? So Noah's not pronouncing this curse upon Ham, right? But upon Ham's son, Canaan. And this is a prophetic curse because we know from Scripture that the Canaanites went on to be this foolish people that worshipped idols and behaved poorly, right? They were going to be, to forever be, the lowest of servants to Shem and Japheth. Again, I know I'm leaving you in suspense, but we'll look at who these people are today in our day and age. We'll look at who they are next week, right? But Noah continues in verse 26, and, and he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So I'll give you a little clue here. Shem is the ancestor of the children of Israel. And Noah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. He then goes on in verse 27, May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So the Canaanites will be lower than the descendants of both Shem and Japheth. And Noah kind of prophetically pronounces this upon them. And it turns out, it's prophetic because it turns out to be true with the way the Canaanite people ended up being, okay? And then verse 28, 
and Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So we've seen there's a lot to be learned from the ark. There's a lot to be learned from the flood. There's a lot to be learned from the life of Noah and, of course, his descendants, and we'll go on and we'll study that more. But there's just a lot to be learned in the pages of Scripture, more than I can possibly cover with you in a, in a decent amount of time on Sunday morning. So as always, this can't be your only meal, right? This can't be your only spiritual meal. Study the Word of God for yourself. Take a look at even what we've talked about today and see what the Lord shows you and see how much deeper you can dig than what I just kind of did touching the surface of all of this stuff, okay? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, again, we thank you for the opportunity to gather around your holy word. Lord, we we know, we understand that we all fall short of the glory of God. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have shed your blood for the remission of our sin. We thank you, Lord, for the faith that you have given us, that we can trust in you, that we can hope in you, that we have a hope and a future in you and because of you. And as we walk through this life, though, Lord, and as we just continue to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of you, Lord, I pray that your will would be done in each and every one of our hearts, Lord. I pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that as we go forward into this coming week, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that we would see the hearts of others that, Lord, we would be able to minister your love and your grace to them, Lord, that we would be able to reach out in the truth of your love. Lord, we look at your word. We know that your word is truth. We know that your word has changed our hearts. We know that your word has done a work with inside of us and continues to do so, Lord. And I don't proclaim to be an expert on your word as I stand here, Lord, because your word is too awesome for me. But Lord, as we go forth, Lord, may we share the love that we see in your word with others around us. Or we pray for those that we'll come in contact with even in the coming week, Lord. Again, Lord, that we would just not blow past these people, but that our eyes would see that they need you and that we would look for the opportunity to share you with them, Lord. So again, Lord, we just humbly thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather like this. I pray for those that couldn't make it today. I pray your blessings upon their lives. I pray for all of those that fellowship around us, around your word, your blessing upon them. May the body of Christ continue to grow, Lord. May your will be done in all of our hearts and minds. We again thank you for this time, and we pray this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.